Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Welcome along to Tech Talk. Coming up over the next hour, I head out to meet with the National Broadband Ireland team as they work to deliver fibre to more than half a million premises around the country. I'll chat to the CEO of the company about meeting targets of time and money, plus the Director of Public Policy at Instagram joins me to discuss their new parents guide to the platform. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. If you're one of the 554,000 premises within the intervention area of the National Broadband Plan, you're probably watching the rollout with great interest, desperate to see when it will come by your front door. We're two years into the seven-year programme and National Broadband Ireland has confirmed that it is running behind schedule. As it stands, almost 35,000 premises have been passed. Since this project started, millions around the country were forced to work and learn from home, highlighting the need for consistent connectivity. Speaking to Newstalk's business editor, Joe Lynham, earlier this week, Tana Shalia Varadkar said that remote hybrid working is not going anywhere. I'm, I'm a big fan of remote working and hybrid working and home working. Um, you know, it's good for families, uh, that people have a bit more flexibility around uh, where they work. Uh, I think it can be very good in terms of rural and regional development uh, to get more people working in remote hubs in uh, small towns and villages. Um, and my basic view is that employers should facilitate it um, and should be willing to do so, uh, provided the business gets done. Uh, and provided that, that the services that are provided to the public aren't diminished in any way. And that would be my kind of benchmark uh, as to whether uh, people should be allowed to, to, to work remotely or, or work from home. Um, and during the pandemic, it was a requirement. As much as possible after the pandemic, uh, I wanted to be a choice. A mix of remote working, increased reliance on digital tools and, of course, entertainment means those in the intervention area want and need high-speed connectivity sooner rather than later. Members of MBI appeared before an Oireachtas committee last week explaining why the project has been delayed, but also highlighting some of the work that has been done. I was eager to learn more about the project as a whole and speak to those who were on the ground building the network. I'm going to bring you out to the roadside in Blessington where fibre was being laid on Monday morning. But before I do, I want to tell you some of the things I learned while out at MBI HQ. Firstly, it's worth remembering, this is the largest telecommunications project ever undertaken by the Irish state. As part of the National Broadband Plan, NBI will be laying enough cable to go around the world three and a half times. That's a lot of cable. Before we get to the cable, though, we need to talk about the surveying. And this is not the sexiest part of the project, but it is a vital cog in the machine to ensure that no building is left behind and that potential problems can be identified or ideally rectified before the build begins. Speaking to me at MBI HQ, Peter Hendrick explained what goes in to the survey process. I suppose if you think about the size of the, the National Broadband Network, we hear about 554,000 premises, 1.1 million people. Those homes and where the people live are all over the country. So as we're rolling out fibre, and the fibre to pass the home, so the fibre is outside the home that we can ultimately connect, we have to survey all of the infrastructure, whether it's above ground or underground, to see how we're going to install that cable. So that's the survey stage. And in that stage, we have engineers who are actually going along the road, testing the poles that we're going to put the cable on, on or verifying that the duct is in place under the ground. 
And that's literally walking the streets, walking along country roads. And so there's a huge amount of effort that has to go into that phase of the project. And when he says literally walking the streets to complete the surveying stage, he really means it. I saw the data for the Blessington area. This consists of around 5,000 premises. Every pole and duct, also known as assets, in this region is mapped and photographed from multiple angles. Every pole and duct has a mini report on its status, whether it's on grass or tarmac, the height of it, and so many other elements. There are approximately 20,000 of these assets in the Blessington region alone. Time-consuming is an understatement, but it is an essential part of the process. By gathering this information, MBI knows if trees need to be cut, if new poles need to be installed or old poles need to be repaired, thus eliminating roadside issues on the day of install. This is one of the behind the scenes elements that explains some of the work that has gone on over the last two years. Only once those steps have been completed can they go to the next stage, the design. It's not enough for engineers to look out their van window and see a pole on the road. They have to work out how and where the network will lie, how and where new infrastructure needs to be inserted and how as well as when they can get the work done. Then and only then do we get to the build. After soaking up just about as much data as my brain could handle at MBI HQ, I jumped in the car to meet some of the MBI deployment team who were out in the field building this network. My name is Mal Heffernan. I'm the Active Network Delivery Manager for MBID. It's my responsibility at every major town and subsidiary towns to put the active equipment that allows connectivity to the internet. So we're building an information highway. The physical aspect of that is the fibres along the roads, on the poles, and they appear at everyone's house. But you're putting information on it so I want you to imagine that everyone's house is a postman with an envelope ready to take the information that you've got on your computer screen a page in Amazon where you're going to press click that is condensed into the envelope taken from this imaginary postman and put straight up to the internet and so fast that I can't even describe it it's within milliseconds it takes absolutely no time at all to get from any point in Ireland up to our centre location in Dublin onto the internet. And what I do with that information highway is kind of design the size of the envelope, how the postman's going to put it in a car or a truck, go along a B road to an A road to a motorway. And as you travel along each road, speeds get faster and faster and faster. So the end focus is that envelope arrives at Dublin and it's like a huge sorting office and it turns around and it takes that information and it says I'll send you to Google I'll send you to Amazon I'll send you across to the States and it allows everyone to uh, communicate from A to B on this information highway with the latest technology the latest method of uh, building it in the ground on the roads as fast as we can um, and that's the challenge that we've got to do it as fast as we can while still allowing it to work. So every major town has what we call a point of handover. I'll try and keep the acronym slow. Um, they are like the county capital. And around the county you have periphery towns. And what we do is we get every county's capital connected first 
and then we branch out and we connect the periphery towns to the capital the capital goes up to Dublin where you've got the major salting office so Blessington would be a major centre for this area so we've got this site first and there'll be periphery sites as time goes on that will connect to Blessington so technically we use the envelope we use Ethernet the sorting office is IP traffic and that's how we do it with layer 2 and layer 3 in our network as a product what we do is act as an impartial infrastructure supplier you as the customer get to choose who you want to be that supplier and we treat you all the same to make sure that you can get from your home all the way to the data center the technology that we're using is cutting edge and we've got the challenge that we also have to look ahead for the next 10 years so what this location would have specifically as the if you like county capital is it would have two links back to Dublin you've got to make sure that they're diverse if one link fails you've still got the other link we've got to make sure that if the equipment fails for whatever reason that we've got two items in our location so as if there's a failure on the hardware we can replace it we've got to have autonomy with the battery backup so as that if the supply ESB storms and things like that affect us that we've got a mechanism in place to give us a small window of time to come here with a temporary supply while ESB comes back so as our customers should never feel that outage um, the challenge to actually reach here is the routes along the road the poles along the road um, that all has to be carefully designed managed it takes months and months of work and then you've got the challenge that somebody has to survey it check that it's there then you've got the problem when you actually put the cables in the ground that there hasn't been a blockage if there's a considerable amount of time and we try to condense this as much as we can but even then if there's other works nature just things that we can't control cause that blockage a tree falling on a cable in a storm can impact us in a major manner that we have to react very fast to fix it's extra work it's extra time while we're still trying to deliver on target um, the equipment is made with chips every modern car these days has about 40 chips in it to enable that car engine to run smoothly we've got approximately 400 and now there's a worldwide shortage of those chips so we've got the challenge that we've got to look ahead to make sure that we're always ahead of that demand and that we're not delayed the equipment itself has thousands and thousands of words of coding specialized skills specialized experts to look at this there's nearly as much work inside to make sure that imaginary man is already waiting at your house to take that envelope and bring it straight up to the internet as quick as a finger as quick as we can so those challenges are a lot of checks a lot of concerns with time and delivery a lot of expert knowledge and it's constantly evolving and reacting constantly Mal was like a proud parent showing me how the system gets put together we were at a site in Blessington that you'd walk by a thousand times without ever realizing it was an important part of our national broadband infrastructure now, as I mentioned before, a huge amount of work gets done before Mal's team hits the road, but his team also has a lot of planning to do up to a year before a site gets worked on. We look at ordering the equipment a year in advance. 
when the equipment arrives uh, in country we normally get it about two months before it's needed we then also have to make sure um, that the facility that we're going to has the power has the necessary space for us to put our equipment in that check takes about again at the year mark we'll focus on the equipment nine month mark we'll focus on the space and availability six months mark we're checking is everything ordered correctly has everything been delivered at the three month mark we're dispatching teams to actually put it in place to make sure that we've got everything going hopefully by the two month mark we're actually commissioning it making sure it's all working doing everything that we can at the one month mark we're doing final checks making sure that nothing has made a mistake so as that we're at the zero month we're ready matching TJ's delivery that there's no issues it's a um, it seems like it's a long time but it's not when you're in the middle of checking all of these things one comes after another after another it is constantly keeping the flow going so um, time runs out very very quickly yeah and time is I suppose one of the key issues that if you are waiting on fiber to come to your home in the intervention area you are probably looking at your watch looking at the calendar saying when is it going to come past my door can you give us a bit of insight into how and why all of that process that you've just mentioned takes so long and why it has to take so long for it to be done properly as a member of joe public when i ask for the internet to go to my home my children are using it my wife is using it could be a business using it you want it to be a hundred percent correct and let's be honest in this day and age you're paying money for it and it's something that you have it's a utility that you need so to ensure that we do that correctly we have to assess how we reach you which comes into the designs we have to go and speak to other utilities to make sure that we're not impacting their business or their business isn't impacting ours we also have to look at the products that we're providing is it a 500 meg service is it a gig e is it a two gig so again we're looking at developing over time what customers need the internet of things is growing so fast that you know that's talk in the future that as you open your fridge door and you take the marmalade out and the barcode is read by the fridge it counts how many times you do that and the next thing you know it's got an order ready to go to your local food supplier to say are you ready to pay for your new marmalade we can't imagine the uses that the internet's going to have over the next 20 years all you've got to do is look at your phone could you imagine that you'd be watching films on it reading a book so to make sure that we provide the services that the customer need it's important that we do all of these checks beforehand and that we keep checking as the environment is changing as our products are changing we've got to change with it um, and it does take time to do that there's a lot of experts there's a lot of people there's a lot of knowledge that you need we've got to understand how the country itself is developing is there a new road use the new road is there problems with an existing route because of deteriorating poles we've got to check it what happened a year ago isn't necessarily what happened this month so it's constantly evolving to our customers i'm sure it seems like that we are uh, not responding as quick as they need what they've got to uh, appreciate or what we'd like them to appreciate is that we're in a very very fluid changing environment covid has had an impact on us all um, the storms have an impact on us all the design has a change if you build a new estate 
you've got to plan for that new estate. We might not have known about it nine months ago. You know, things like that are, are always coming into play to make sure that we fit everyone's needs in the intervention area. And again, we have to be as best as we can impartial to all those customers in that, in par in that intervention area. We want to treat them all equally. So we kind of have to look in a globular detail as well as looking at the granular detail. And it's, it is challenging, very challenging. If you drive through an active deployment area, you'll see workers on the side of the road with bundles of cable and a gray machine that, to the untrained eye, looks like it could be used to make pasta. It is in fact used to blow fiber cables into ducts in the ground. It's a delicate process that has to be done with great precision because any kinks or bends in the cable could impact the quality of service the customer along that road will receive. TJ Malone, the CEO of NBI Deployment, took me out to see it in action. Aidan is one of our build managers on the ground. A couple of, he'd have the Blessing area, the Kilkool area. He'd be looking after the contractors on the ground, making sure everything is ready for them. Because the lads are going to blow a fiver now. Yeah. So now we've blown, this is the blowing machine here for blowing the cable. So that's, that's the fiber cable there? Yeah. And he's going to blow that now the whole way through the ducting. Uh, Aidan McQueeny, I'm a clerk who works for an MBI. Okay, so at the moment we're on an air make ready section of the, the job, which means Aircom installed a subduct into the Aircom structure duct, which is a four inch duct. Uh, when that is complete, they pass it over to MBI, and we come back and install <coughs> inside a subduct a uh, fiber cable. Now it could be any size, but that one there you were looking at was a 144, which is the main fiber coming from the colo where we started at. And that, that's a distribution uh, fiber that will break up down the road into a 96, a 48 and 24s. The lads have blown 1.5 kilometres of cable down the far end to Punchestown. So to blow it all the way back up the road because of the nature and, and nature of the build and structure we're doing here, they're going to have to blow it back up towards Eads, Eads Town House. So that's another 1,700 metres that way. So they'll fleet out all the cable and then re-blow it because there's only so much pressure on that generator to push the, to blow the fibre up the road. And I was hearing as well that you have to be very careful with it because any kinks or breaks in the cable could be disastrous. Absolutely, we can't afford any uh, uh, attrition to the cable or any, any defects because it needs to be going in straight lines as much as possible with slow bends. Any kinks or sharp turns will break the cable and it actually won't blow into that subduct that you witnessed there. And so is this process going on at every point along the way? Every point, every... This structure will go as far as the overhead route. It will go on, uh, this is all the underground section of it, and some of it, most of this is air make ready, and then we go into the unstructured duct of the uh, Aircom network, which is then our jurisdiction, MBI. So sometimes we can install the subduct, sometimes we can't. But yes, by and large, this would replicate throughout the whole country. Incredible, and even the, the road traffic management, just to give people an idea, yeah. because again, it's not just one van pulling up onto the side of the road to do this. There's road traffic management that has to be taken into account. There's obviously your workers here on the road that we have to take into account. So there's a lot of logistics before you get to even turn that generator on. There's serious consideration before we even commence work here. We'd have surveys going through, looking at the nature of the road, the volumes of traffic. Uh, we're engaging closely with the councils and with local residents. So we have a lot of pre-works pre uh, safety measures to put in place here. The priority is safety with the men on the ground. 
as you can see here, that's why he was communicating to you at the target on the way down. We have to make sure everybody's safe entering and exiting these sites and including the public. We left that site to drive a few minutes further down the road and catch up with another of the workers who was, without overstating it, conducting surgery on the side of the road to splice the fibre cable and get it ready for the next stage. This is a pretty specialised skill set. The fibre itself is thinner than a single hair. It needs to be sterilised and handled very carefully because any damage or dust will impact performance. Once this work has been completed in a particular area, it's then made ready for consumer orders. This is where the retail service providers get involved and then hopefully people are connected. If you're within the intervention area wondering why a house down the road from you has been connected but you have not, it's frustrating, but there is a reason for it. There are limitations on the fibre. This process is being carried out to ensure that any home that does get past receives optimal performance from it. The planned process has to be followed to enable that. If you go to nbi.ie and put in your air code, you'll get a status update. While I and many others have been banging the drum about the need for speed with this rollout, it is important to acknowledge that there are many factors at play. The work I witnessed during my time at MBI emphasised that there are many plates spinning at once to get it done. So while 35,000 premises have been passed, more than 290,000 have been surveyed and over 250,000 have been designed. Building is underway on almost 120,000 premises right around the country. It may not be happening as fast as we'd all like, but it is happening. When we come back here on News Talk, I'm going to sit down with Peter Hendrick, the CEO of NBI, to find out if the seven-year project will be completed on time and on budget. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at jesskellynt. I'm bringing you inside National Broadband Ireland, the company that is rolling out the National Broadband Plan. Before the break, we heard about the work that's going on in towns right around the country. But now I'm going to bring you my chat with the CEO, Peter Hendrick. I started by asking him to explain some of the terminology that's often used when talking about this project, such as surveyed, designed and built. So, so survey, I suppose if you think about the size of the, the National Broadband Network, we hear about 554,000 premises, 1.1 million people. Those homes and where the people live are all over the country. So as we're rolling out fibre and the fibre to pass the homes, so the fibre is outside the home that we can ultimately connect, we have to survey all of the infrastructure, whether it's above ground or underground, to see how we're going to install that cable. So that's the survey stage. And in that stage, we have engineers who are actually going along the road, testing the poles that we're going to put the cable on, on, or verifying that the duct is in place under the ground. And that's literally walking the streets, walking along country roads. And so there's a huge amount of effort that has to go into that phase of the project. Then once we take those surveys back, so it's millions of photographs, and all of the data points, we put them into a map. And in that map then we design, okay, how's the fiber actually going to get deployed? Where's the cable going to go? How long is that cable going out from a center point out to the end of a, of a route? And typically that route design, if you're coming from a center point where the active equipment is, where we're actually providing the service from, it's typically between 20 and 25 kilometers. And that range is entirely dependent on the future proofing we want to provide over this network. So. If you think about it, we have to ensure that over the next 25 years, if we move from 10 gigabit network today 
to 100 gig to 400 gig and beyond that actually the optical equipment will work over the distance of the cable so there's a huge amount of um, analysis is being done both from a software perspective but also from the hundreds of designers that we have who are who have a lot of experience in terms of rolling out fiber networks so when the design is done and the design includes okay where do we need to trim trees where do we need to actually replace poles what ducts do we need to install and new infrastructure needs to be built and once those designs are done and there's and, and we do a a multiple process review of those designs those designs then are, are provided out to our contractors and our subcontractors. So some of our big contractors, in terms of utilizing existing infrastructure, we would use airs, you know, existing poles and duct or e-nets in the metropolitan area networks. So they have to do a make-ready program. So of the poles that we say need to be replaced, they have to replace the poles. Of the ducts that we're going to use, they've got to make sure that the capacity is there and they're not blocked. And then we equally pass out those activities then out to our own main subcontractors once the infrastructure is ready to install cables, our main contractor comes along and they install new infrastructure, new poles, new duct, and they also install the fiber cable that's going to ultimately pass homes. When all that cable is up, and typically you might have challenges as you're going along on, on building out network, you might have a bridge that's, um, that, that needs to be crossed or a motorway, and, and you, can, you can actually build infrastructure on both sides of that blockage, but ultimately we can't turn on the service until we have an end-to-end cable and once we have the end-to-end cable we activate the service and then we start offering homes to get connected so what's critical right now in our program today in our program we have 154,000 premises under construction versus our original plan at this stage would have been 180,000 premises so from our perspective that's the most important leading uh, factor in terms of the program I suppose I go back go back to the survey piece I suppose at the end of this year, we will have um, surveyed 70, 70% of the entire country. Um, e- even if, you know, just to accelerate the build program, what other technologies might, might, might we use? It's all, building out any large infrastructure of this scale is always going to take time. And we are, we are two years in now. Um, what is critical is we have that, that um, forward momentum. We have the volume now. We have built up the survey and design activity now that will transfer into the build. So any decision, and obviously we have to look at this from an equality perspective. Every single county, we're trying to build them all at the same time. So we're, we're trying to provide equality across the country. Um, and all of these pro- programs take time. There is no shortcut in terms of building it faster, other than today we assess, okay, how many poles need to replace? How many uh, kilometers of duct need to be installed? And they're the volumetrics that we're working on to make this a faster program. Uh, in terms of completing that surveying work, I saw some stats that show it has accelerated massively in the last little while. You are learning as you're going along and there is progress being made that will hopefully speed up the process versus what we saw in the last two years or so. Absolutely. As, as we're surveying and we're building infrastructure where there hasn't been infrastructure built in such a long time, we're starting to realise where the where some of the challenges are and where we need to focus up front in terms of survey and design and ultimately build. But also we're starting to automate a lot of our a lot of our designs. So we're we're starting to speed up the process in which we take the survey data. And one example would be we're starting to use technology like LIDAR 
in terms of what trees need to be trimmed. Instead of having surveyors taking lots of photographs, can we use a LIDAR technology where we determine which trees need to be trimmed in order to get the installation of the cable on the pole in the most efficient manner that speeds up the programme? So absolutely there are learnings which will help and enable the acceleration of the programme. When I spoke to you the last time and when I spoke to David McCourt as well, you were both confident that the project would be completed um, ahead of schedule and under budget. We know that there have been many factors, factors at play over the last wee while. Where are we on those two metrics? So if I look at um, the financial cost of the project, um, we, we're on, in the process of completing our first 10 deployment areas. So we have a clear visibility on the, on the cost of the, both the make ready and the bill of the fibre and ultimately connection of homes. So the leading indicators from those 10 deployment areas is that we will be delivering this project on budget. In terms of time, Every large infrastructure project is based on the volumes, how, how you determine your, uh, how many poles and how many kilometres of duct you're going to install. So at the summer of last year, we contracted with AIR to double the capacity of the poles they were going to replace per annum and also increase the number of kilometres of duct per annum. So we've contracted with AIR to do that and they started the increase of that on the 1st of October 2021. And the next phase of that is April and the phase after that is June. So increasing our volume of activity are the critical things that are ultimately going to bring this project in on time. One of the factors that I had never really considered that much, to be completely honest with you, uh, which was discussed on Thursday, was the cooperation uh, between the local councils right around the country. There are plenty of them there. You do rely on their cooperation to get things done. How is that going at the moment? Have things improved? And how does that expedite your process? I suppose uh, when you think about all the different local authorities across the country, this is, this is one of the first programmes where, where we had to come up with a framework that worked for all local authorities. And in May of 2021, we agreed that framework with the Roads Management uh, Office and all of the local authorities. So certainly for the programmes ahead, it's working a lot more efficient. The number of poles that we're going to, we're going to install, new poles we're going to install across the country for this year's programme, 2022, have already been licensed. So it gives us real confidence going into 2022 and ultimately into 2023 as we get our designs in early and start to feed that into the local authorities and progress in terms of the build of the programme. We're still only a few years into it. We only have a few years left to go, but people are looking around at alternatives. So whether that is 5G connectivity, whether that is satellite broadband or any of the other alternatives that could be out there, do you think people in the intervention area will wait for you or do they have an alternative to, to not wait for you? I, I think there, there are alternative solutions that are providing low-speed broadband today. You know, obviously within the 30 meg, some may be over in terms of alternative technologies. But, but you're never going to be in terms of where fibre is going and the future-proof piece. So when we launched, we launched with 500 megabits per second as the minimum speed, uh, with a 1 gig and a 2 gig product now available. As we start to build out this network, we will increase those, those products and services aligned with urban areas. So I think naturally the demand for bandwidth is going to be so high, fibre is the only solution in terms of meeting that demand. That was Peter Hendrick, the CEO of NBI. When we come back here on News Talk, I chat with the Director of Public Policy at Instagram about their new safety guide for parents. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tuesday is Safer Internet Day. There will be plenty of talk about how young people interact with social media and technology as a whole. 
But ahead of that, Instagram launched a new parent and carer's guide to its platform. Tara Hopkins is the Director of Public Policy at Instagram and she joins me now. And um, Tara, you're very welcome to the show. There's been a lot of talk in recent months about the impact Instagram in particular has on young people. Uh, we've been hearing for years now that we need to get better at educating our kids and teens on how the online world works. With all that in mind, why have you decided to do this launch uh, of this document right now? So we're releasing it ahead of the Safer Internet Day, which is on Tuesday, the 8th of February. Um, and actually it's the second iteration of a parent and carer's guide to Instagram, but it really felt like the right time to do it now because over the last year or so, we've really updated a lot of our tools and our features um, for young people, as well as uh, older users on Instagram. We really wanted to, to, to provide a guide that was specifically written and developed for parents and caregivers. And I'd say grandparents and teachers are so important in this as well to really help them to demystify Instagram. I think, you know, during COVID, so many of, our, of us have, have turned to social media and we want to give parents a deeper understanding of what the app is. There's some great infographics in there to explain all of the safety and the privacy features that are available, as I said, many of which are new. And I think it's just a great time to, to, to be able to, 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 to let parents know. There are some out there who are very sceptical about technology as a whole, but particularly social media. And a lot of the stuff we've heard over the last 12 months obviously doesn't help. But I think it's important that we acknowledge that this guide, you haven't done this in a vacuum, is something that you've worked on uh, with the likes of Webwise, for example, who we featured on this programme in the past to ensure that parents are getting the information that we know that they're eager to get. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we, we really appreciate the input from Webwise. And indeed, we developed it with parenting experts from across the EU. And we're trying to localize this guide as much as we can in, in, in the different countries. And it is really important. We know that it can be incredibly scary um, and it's daunting if you're a parent and you haven't grown up as a child on social media. It's daunting to have the kind of conversations with your young person about the experiences that they're having. But what I would say is that we see young people, particularly on Instagram, using it in the most extraordinary ways. They're getting inspired by new interests. They're setting trends. Um, they're getting involved in activism and just every day connecting with their friends and their loved ones. But if you don't know and understand the app itself, it can feel daunting, which is which is why we really want we really wanted to um, to develop this. What I would I'll draw out a few areas mm -hmm. of the guide that might be helpful uh, for parents who are listening and caregivers who are listening. So we really focus on thinking about your privacy, thinking about your teen's privacy, and talking to your teen about their privacy. So since last year on Instagram, we default all new teen users. So you you have to be over thirteen to have an Instagram account so all new teen users are defaulted into a private account um, and that means that their 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 experience on Instagram from day one has got privacy um, embedded into it and we're also sending reminders to those who already have an Instagram account who are teenagers to think about their privacy and we know that young people often will have more than one Instagram account they might have an Instagram account for their dog um, as well as an Instagram account that they might have to, to 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 share and connect with friends and family so to really think about 
their privacy. The second thing is the new tools that we've introduced to really prevent unwanted contact. And we hear from young people loud and clear that they don't want to be contacted by adults that they don't know. And we really hear that. So we've, we've created new tools that stop that interaction between adults and young people who they don't know. So you have to follow and follow back in order to be able to say direct message, DM uh, a teenager on Instagram. The third thing I'd say is really familiarize yourself with the tools that we've built to help fight against bullying. Sadly, bullying happens on social media as well as, as offline. Um, and to be a little bit immodest, I think Instagram has been leading the industry on the anti-bullying tools that we've built over the last couple of years. It doesn't mean that bullying doesn't happen. It, it does, but we have strict policies in place and technology that we've built to find and remove bullying content on Instagram. But it can be highly, highly contextual. What is banter and fun between two people could be really bullying content between a, a, a different group of people. So it's highly contextual. And what we talk about in the guide is, you know, to be able to feel like you can report content. We want to know on Instagram if you are the victim of a bully. We really want to know that, but we also need to understand the context of that. Um, and we also remind young people and their parents that when you report anything to us, it is completely anonymous. And I think that's really important. We've heard from young people that they feel a bit nervous sometimes reporting um, because if they think that the person they're reporting might find out, they absolutely will not. It is always anonymous. Um, the other thing is to turn on some of the controls and the tools that we've built because bullying can be so highly contextual. So we have controls in direct messages. You can limit people who can message you. Um, and last year we developed a new tool again that's in the guide, which is called Hidden Words. And this is basically a list of words that we developed with um, anti-hate organizations in many countries in Europe. Um, and it's a list that you can kind of default on, you can click it on, and you won't see offensive words, expressions, or emojis that are in that list. And then you can add to that list as well. If there's a particular word or a particular expression you don't want to see in your direct messages or you don't want to see in your comments, you can you can add to that as well. Um, just the, just the, picking up on that one, Tara, just for a second, that's actually a tool that uh, I'm not a child, I'm not a teenager and I use it and I would highly encourage any Instagram user to go in and look at these settings because although we're talking about this in the context of children, there are things that, that are on the platform as well to protect adults because I know that um, it, it, like not just Instagram but social media in general, you know, this kind of stuff happens to adults as well as kids but the other thing I want to pick up on is the, the context you mentioned context because that is incredibly important and not only does bullying happen you know in direct messages or in private scenarios there can also be harassment and that passive aggressive nature and you can control who can um, I suppose interact under your post and you can delete comments under posts so if somebody is putting you know a passive aggressive uh, you know emoji under a picture or constantly harassing and pushing stuff under images that are on the main uh, the main grid the, the stuff can be done about that as well nothing is permanent here sure it's not that's right and we do we really encourage people to report a comment that is offensive to them because a lot of this is picked up in AI and we have technology as well as, as human reviewers who look at this kind of content for us. But the more that content is, is, is reported to us, the better we can understand, particularly when it's it's bullying and it's harassment because, it's, as you said, it's highly contextual. There are other things that we've been building as well, which we cover in the guide, which we call kind of nudge techniques. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and these are really important because if someone is 
typing a comment that could be potentially offensive, abusive, or upsetting. The AI is now picking that up and it's sending a little message to that person in, in the moment to say, think twice about this, this could be abusive, this could be, um, this could, could be bullying. Um, and what we've seen in, uh, is that almost uh, uh, half of people who are sent this little message actually have edited or deleted the, the comment that they, were going to, that they were going to post. So we can see that these types of nudge techniques are really working and it's, and it's, it's really important um, because we want Instagram and social media to be a place that's supportive and kind. There's, there's been a lot of talk um, over the last number of years about the content that young people consume online, uh, not just on social media, but across the internet as a whole. And one of the very worrying trends, particularly with young girls, involves body image. Um, we know that Instagram is a visual platform and some of the images are fantastic. I use it. It's my preferred platform out of every social media because I feel like I have more control over the community that follow me and that I follow there, which is great. But... What about the content that gets served to the young person on the Explore page, for example? Are there any measures that are put in place to ensure that they're not getting, you know, ridiculous, you know, um, content like before and after pictures, for example, could be hugely damaging or any of those celebrities advertising skinny tees or whatever it is. Is there any safeguards that can be put in place or that are in place on the platform to try and protect our young people from that? Yeah, and it's it's so, so important because we want young people, teens and everyone else on Instagram to to have a positive experience. You know, we want them to 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 walk away from their time on Instagram feeling good about themselves. And so, yeah, we do. We think about this really, really deeply. We want young people to to interact with the body positive community, which is huge and really diverse and really active uh, on Instagram. And we have a number of policies in place. Uh, you mentioned diet teas there, where we're very, very careful about about the kind of content that is uh, in your Explore. So for those of, of you who don't know, Explore is, is a kind of search place on Instagram. Uh, and, in, and we recommend content sometimes to, to people. We have recommendation guidelines where we have a higher bar for the kind of content that we would recommend to, to people and particularly to young people. So we have clear policies about content that's related to weight loss products or cosmetic surgeries, some of which we would age gate. So knowing and understanding those who are under the age of 18 is really important for us. And um, so we're able to, to, to surface the right kind of content to young people. And sometimes we remove it completely. And we're even stricter when it comes to, to ads uh, that are related to any kind of uh, cosmetic surgeries or weight loss products, such as you mentioned, uh, their diet teas. We really do want people to have a positive experience when, when they're on Instagram. That said, we also know that young people come to Instagram to explore. And if someone is suffering from um, a mental health challenge uh, or an eating disorder, we are always talking to experts about these things. We have our own eating disorder uh, advisory group that we speak to very, very regularly to understand how, how social media is being used and, and to understand that community and to make sure that we are providing resources to young people in the moment if they might be searching for this kind of content. So again, it's something that's in the guide and to give parents, I think, some, some, some understanding of the kind of resources that we would provide to someone who is searching for this kind of content. And we think Instagram does have a role uh, in helping to destigmatize uh, issues around mental health. So, you know, as I say, the vast majority 
of people who are coming to Instagram are having a really positive time. But we also want it to be a place where if you're looking for a community, you're able to find it there and you're also able to find help and support on Instagram as well and get connected with the real experts who uh, in Ireland, for instance, we would be connecting young people to, to, to NGOs and helplines in Ireland. Yeah, I would highly encourage um, parents. That I don't have kids, but I have nieces and nephews. And I, I was reading through this and getting an understanding of you know the controls that can be put in place because obviously as an adult you know how to navigate these things a lot of the time but if you're not tech savvy if you're not on Instagram yourself it is well worth getting your hands on this um th- this guide which is available online um and it, it does have screenshots uh, to show you where you can go to report things to restrict content to follow or unfollow get a lot of information um that'll make the internet and Instagram in particular a safer place for your child and um, my final question for you Tara and you mentioned it at the top in relation to um kids younger people on the platform so we know that we have the digital age of consent we know that there are uh, terms of use that relate to age on the platform but we also know that kids know how to do 2022 minus whatever age they want to be to try and get onto the platform and get access to a profile are we any nearer to utilizing technology to identify and verify the age of young people so we can assure, ensure that, you know, these uh, tools that are in place can be implemented on those profiles. So absolutely, we're investing really heavily on, on understanding age better on Instagram. So we've been collecting age uh, in Ireland uh, uh, for, for several years now and doing it globally just for the last year or so. So we're getting a better and better understanding of those who are on Instagram. But yes, unfortunately, some young people do uh, give us the wrong birthday um, and we are developing technology that using artificial intelligence to try to estimate how old um, a person is based on things like a happy birthday post. So if a lot of people are wishing someone a happy 16th birthday, but their stated age on Instagram is 23, uh, our artificial technology will be able to pick up that. And then we will ask them to verify their age. So this is the kind of technology that we are investing in building so that we can better understand uh, age on our platform. And I'd really encourage young people and and through the guide, you know, parents to have these kinds of conversations with their young person, because when Instagram has a better understanding of the real age of someone on our platform, we're then able to build an experience for that that person, which is appropriate for their age. And that's really important because as I say, we want people to come to Instagram and to have a really positive experience. And and parents have such an important role to play in being able to sit down and have that conversation. And, And I would really strongly encourage parents to have that conversation early, you know, when their teenagers are 13 and 14 and to ask them what kind of experience they want to have to set the ground rules and there are some great tips in in the guide which have been developed by parenting experts and as I said with input from Webwise to help parents just really easy things about how to talk to your young person and simple things like you know maybe having a side-by-side conversation in a car or on a walk is actually easier than kind of confronting a young person sitting around a kitchen table Um, and and I think understanding the platform and as I said hopefully we've demonstrated it a little bit more for parents and carers they're able to have those informed conversations with their young people brilliant stuff tara hopkins the public policy director at instagram thanks so much for joining us here on news talk thank you and that is all we have time for this week if you missed any of the show you can of course listen back in full on the news talk app powered by go loud i'll be back with shane and kira on monday's news talk breakfast john friday's up next year on news talk in the meantime have a good weekend